0: Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with David Deal, who is an intellectual property attorney specializing in copyright infringement matters on behalf of photographers and businesses throughout the U.S. and Europe. Prior to becoming a lawyer, David spent nearly 20 years working as a freelance photographer, working with top publications and newspapers, so he has a deep understanding of copyright issues that professional photographers deal with while running a business. In this interview, I speak to David about what led him to a career in law and ways photographers can best protect their work from copyright infringement. I also speak to David about his work on the case of the late photographer Vivian Meyer that he's been working on for years. Copyright infringement is something that most photographers will deal with at some point in their career, so I was happy to get a chance to speak with a legal expert about ways to protect our work. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and thanks so much for listening. All right. Well, David Deal, welcome to the podcast, man. Excited to have you on. Um, before we start recording, like I said, uh, I discovered your work like probably like 12, 13. When did you publish your bi- baseball book?
1: The Prospects was published in 2001.
0: Okay. I think I bought it when I got out of college around like 2008 or 2009. And uh and I I loved your work, all the editorial portrait stuff you've done. And when I discovered you became a lawyer, I was like, oh, wow. Uh, so I was just kind of interested to talk to you, how you kind of made that transition and everything you're working on. Um, but to start off, I know when we we're setting this up. You were kind of in the middle of a deposition and I got a lot of legal questions i don't know a lot about the law so these are probably real elementary questions but Mm -hmm. uh, what is a deposition and like what purpose do they serve and what have you kind of been working on lately
1: um well well a deposition um a deposition is a uh it it is legal testimony uh by uh typically usually by someone who is a party Mm -hmm. uh to a case either a defendant or a plaintiff, both both parties can be deposed by the other party. Yeah, and all a deposition is is a legal testimony under oath. Uh, the questioning is done by one party; uh, the answering is done by the other party. Uh, there is usually, well, not usually there. There is always a court reporter uh, present for the deposition that is taking uh, official an official record. Yeah. Of what takes place, um, civil cases tend to be very complicated. They tend to be much more complicated than the, what people think of as like small claims court, where people come in and one party says, "Well, this happened," and the other the other person says, "This happened," and it takes five or ten minutes, and the judge makes a ruling. Yeah, civil cases can be very, very complex, and depositions are a method for taking testimony uh, prior to uh, an actual trial. that, that is designed to save the court and everybody else, time, time. and resources and yeah. so forth. So they're very, very common. They're part of almost every, every litigated civil case.
0: And what I know, I think you've been working on it for years. You've been, I believe, representing the Vivian Meyer, uh, estate, I believe. And I think that was what you're kind of working on with the deposition. And I was just kind of curious, how do you kind of become involved with the Vivian Meyer case? And for anybody listening, maybe you could explain who she is and what you're trying to accomplish, like kind of working with her. Yeah.
1: yeah. So the Vivian Meyer case, um, and just, uh, I'll, I can explain more about it, but, uh, currently uh, I don't represent the estate mm-hmm. I represent uh, these uh, the prospective heirs mm-hmm. to the estate Got so the, in in an ordinary case uh, they would be one and the same but this case they're not yet yeah. at least so uh, for, for those for those that the your listeners that aren't um, familiar with Vivian Meyer Vivian Meyer was a a um, she was a, a, a single woman that uh, lived um, from the 20s to the 70s. Uh, she, she, she never married. Uh, she worked as a nanny uh, for uh, a selection of wealthy individuals, both in New York, primarily in New York and Chicago. And the only reason, the only reason we, we talk about her now is because she is a lifelong photographer. Uh, She took it very seriously. She, she took photographs her entire adult life. uh, And she just happened to be uh, a world-class photographer uh, kind of hiding in, hiding in plain sight people, people that she worked for. And she knew, knew she took photographs, but weren't fully aware of the the quality of her work only because she didn't share her work.
0: Yeah. It was like, she Uh, never had any shows or anything. It was really just her own personal like hobby pretty much
1: yeah yeah and she had she had really good equipment. Um, she took it very seriously. she she you know she she didn't formally study with um, with professional photographers, but she certainly accessed their work. Mm-hmm. And not only did she not show um, people her work, but their a certain percentage of her work over the course of her adult life she never even processed. yeah so she shot primarily she shot uh, medium format. so she shot one twenty uh f- format roles of film and at the time that her work was discovered a certain large percentage of it was still in undeveloped form so there were there were thousands of roles of film that she had shot and never had never had processed so she never even got to see a percentage of her work have those since uh, been
0: processed or whoever has yeah. control yeah
1: so, the, so the 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 her story as is has all these equally interesting layers to it, and one of them is that she died she died destitute, uh, without family, mm-hmm. and years later, uh, individuals um, purchased her uh, unpaid for storage lockers where she she. You know, kind of stored all of her belongings. She was she was a bit of a pack rat, and she she didn't throw a whole lot of things out. She kept newspaper articles, and obviously know, she, she kept her film and her prints and so forth. But a couple of individuals stumbled upon her work at a um, you know an unpaid storage locker auction, and they were smart enough to to determine that it was it was worth saving. And the, the images were, you know, not only not only good, but, but kind of world-class. And so it's been a long process, but the, the photographs made the images and the negatives ended up in, in the hands of individuals who knew who they were, took really good care of them, and have been systematically both processing the film, processing the previously unprocessed film, as well as uh, making, making uh, you know, world-class silver gelatin prints out of, the, out of the original negatives.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting because then there was like a whole documentary uh, about her work and everything. And I know I don't know if this applies to photography, but I know like in real estate, there's a term like if there's a property that this is vacant and it's just been sitting there, I believe you can put a lien on it and you can basically if it's just there, I think there is a legal action. I could be wrong to actually take ownership of that property. How did that work? Because I know, it was, uh, I think John Maloof and a couple yeah. other people were the ones who discovered the the photos in auction. Yeah. So, like, how did yeah. that work? It's like yeah, the,
1: the legal the legal um, issues in the case are fascinating, and that that's originally. I mean, I I was I was immediately drawn to the case, you know, because it's because it's photography and because it's really good photography. But I I was I first became aware of uh, the case when I was in first year in law school, so it, it was just kind of this perfect. Perfect combination of law and photography, and that's that's what that's what I first why I was first so drawn to it. So, what you're referring to, property-wise, yeah. real property-wise, meaning uh, real estate or homes or buildings, is something called uh, adverse possession, which yeah. uh, is a it's a state law. States have different versions of it, but essentially, it's if if the proper property owner, the correct property owner, uh, either abandons or doesn't take certain steps to either define or occupy certain land. Uh, there, there are means uh, by which another individual or individuals can come in and, and after a certain period of time, legally claim um, the land. There's no such thing when it comes to intellectual property. Mm. So the, 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 the fascinating legal uh, issue in this case is uh, what happens in a case where Someone like John Maloof, uh, and I'm just—I'm going to use John's name just because he's the person that ended up with the, the the overwhelming percentage of of her work. Yeah. So what happens when a person like John Maloof acquires, legally acquires the the physical manifestation of original works? So he he. Right he, he properly purchased, legally purchased her negatives and prints and belongings. So, you know there was, a, there was a lot of clothing in there and receipts and newspapers, but so forth. But the, the the part that matters is the intellectual property. What happens when someone is the is the the legal owner of the physical property but doesn't own the copyright mm-hmm. to that original? That's the issue in this case. And it's a, it's a very difficult uh, concept for most people to, to understand in that, you know, why doesn't someone like John, uh, John who who is the, is the legal owner of the negatives, mm-hmm. why, why does that not give him the right to, to do what he wants to do with the, the, the intellectual property as if he were the copyright owner? It's, yeah. it's a hard concept to, to understand, but, but he doesn't have that right.
0: Because what? How would you explain int- intellectual property versus actual property? Because the person who created Vivian she's not alive anymore. So how do you kind of explain that? Like yeah, this, what is intellectual right. property versus actual property?
1: Right. So um, intellectual property is is really is really everything that's separate from any other kind. Co- I mean, so there's there's real property which is real estate and housing and so forth. There's there's uh, there's personal property uh, which is, you know, your belongings, your clothing, your, your cars, uh, intellectual property is a, is a, you know, a section, uh, a, a, a part of property, but it's distinct in that typically, uh, copyright mm-hmm. to intellectual property is, is transferred or assigned or passes from, from the copyright holder to somebody else in different ways than all, all other property. So uh, intellectual property vests at the time of creation. Um, there's, there's more technical terms in the copyright statutes, mm-hmm. fixed in a tangible medium. So as soon as an original work, whether or not it's a photograph, sculpture, a painting, uh, you know, a choreography, as soon as it's fixed in a tangible medium, uh, it is copyrighted in the name of the author. And the author is the name given to any creator, any any original creator of original work is deemed to be an author uh, for for purposes of intellectual property. So once that takes place, there are only a certain number of ways that intellectual property can be be transferred or assigned. Hmm. Uh, Like real estate, intellectual property and specifically copyright can only be transferred by written instrument. So for example, if you take a photograph and tomorrow uh, you someone someone you post it online and someone looks at it and they approach you and say, um, you know, not only will you sell me a copy of this this print, but but I w- I'd like to purchase the copyright as well. Yeah. And you say, great, um, you know, uh, send me a dollar and the copyright is yours. That's not a val- valid transfer or assignment of copyright. It has to be it by written instrument. And so when, and, and this is an issue that all of us deal with, um, it only matters in the case where the intellectual property typically where it's valuable. So you and I both have, you know, we're both the copyright holders of, of hundreds if not thousands of works. All the photographs you've taken, all the little doodles that you've made, yeah. all the all the poems and the short stories or the, the, the essays that you've written are your intellectual property. Yeah. Um, So in this case, uh, intellectual property and physical property are two distinct rights. So the physical property can be abandoned, it can be sold, it can be acquired like John Maloof acquired it when Vivian Meyer signed a contract with the storage company. And as soon as she stopped paying, gave the right to the storage company to auction off her work. So the intellectual property is distinct. So, she never, by written instrument, Miss Meyer, never transferred or assigned her copyright during her lifetime, therefore, it's governed by her either her will mm-hmm. or laws of intestacy, which are the laws that govern someone's estate when they die without a will. Um, Vivian Meyer died without a will, so. Everything that she did not dispose of prior to her death is covered under the probate proceedings um, for her estate. So that's, that's why I'm involved. And that's why the case is so interesting is she has the world's most unusual and complex family tree. Um, she had no spouse, she had no kids. And usually that's not a problem because an intestacy statute is literally a list of the order that you go in to determine who who uh, who div- who divides up uh, you know who are the beneficiaries of mm-hmm. of someone's will. There are all kinds of all kinds of uh, uh, kind of um, levels at which uh, a probate court uh, uses to distribute an estate. Uh, they go somewhere along. Every state is different, but somewhere along the lines of, you know, if the decedent died um, with a spouse and kids, the spout, the, the her, you know, the, the decedent's estate is divided 50/50 or 25/25, whatever. If there is no spouse or no kids, it goes to parents and siblings. Mm-hmm. If there's no parents and siblings, it goes to grand, gr- you know, grandparents and great uncles and their ch- so forth. Most intestacy statutes are exhausting. They, they, they provide all of these levels at which uh, an estate can be distributed almost to the point where it's impossible for there not to be someone that you know, can, can take under the, under the statute. It usually doesn't get past the first or second um, contingency because most people have spouses, most people have children, most people have parents that are alive, most people have aunts and uncles and children. Miss Meyer, despite having an incredibly large extended family, none of those applied. Yeah. So we had to keep on going uh, literally, you know, figuratively like, uh, well, up and up and up. So we had to go to siblings, Cousin. their children, parents, aunts and uncles, their children, grandparents, their, their, their siblings and down. So now after, after seven years, we're 99% there, but we're not 100% there. We and still you had, don't know exactly.
0: And you do you have to like basically prove that you went through the steps. Like you tried to find this person. Like you can't just show the court like, hey, I found some cousin. That was the first person I talked to. You have to show that you went through the steps. Like I tried to find uh brother's sisters. and I tried to find grandparents. And you kind of have to show that you at least did exactly. it. Yeah,
1: exactly. Not only that, not only do you have to show you did the work, you have to eliminate mm-hmm. every Every potential avenue there is for there to be an heir, we have to either we have to either find that heir and uh, and and make a case that that person qualifies under the intestacy statute, or eliminate the person. Yeah. So it's not good enough th- that we can go to the court and say, well, we've located one one heir, or two heirs, or something like that. We have to go to the court and say. This is the entire scope of the family tree. This is every single person that is potentially involved based on the intestacy statute. And we've eliminated every single person, but these two or three people using the records at our disposal, meaning that person didn't marry, this person didn't marry or did marry and had kids and those kids, you know, are dead and didn't, we have to eliminate every single potential Avenue. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's taken so long and, 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 you know, so, so much time and effort has been expended.
0: And what's your goal now? Is it to get the the put like the hairs that you're working with? Is it to get the both the copyright and the physical objects back? Or is it just to get the copyright? Or what's your your kind of end goal with this case, I guess?
1: It's the, the goal right now is to have the heirs declared, formally declared heirs by the Cook County, Illinois probate court. So there are there are a number i represent a number of individuals and one estate Mm -hmm. that are prospective heirs to the case based on based on our genealogical research we have determined that all other potential avenues uh are not open open um possibilities there are only a limited number of uh, of individuals left uh we believe they're this we believe they're the sole heirs there are two on the mother side of the family there's seven on the father's side, we believe believe those, they're the sole heirs. And so we are before the court right now, Um, we're we're maybe one step away from having a a formal uh, evidentiary hearing before the court. But we're in the end, we're asking the court to to accept our evidence and declare the individuals and and the one estate that we've identified as the heirs to Vivian Myers estate, Mm -hmm. have them declared as heirs. That doesn't, give them any right to uh, the physical uh, prints or negatives. That, that ship is sailed. Yeah. Um, whoever, whoever is a legal buyer um, of, those, of, those, uh, of that physical property, unless they, unless they want to sell them to the estate, there's nothing that can force them to do that. It's, it's, it's all about being recognized as an heir and therefore um, being in control of the copyright. Yeah. the copyright is still with the estate.
0: Yeah, because like at this point, because anybody you can go online, they've printed several books of Viv- Vivian Meyer's work. They did the documentary. I think, uh, I believe Howard Greenberg, who's like one of the most like prolific photography dealers, I think he deals Vivian's work at this point. He does. So, so if the, if the hairs are recognized in court as the actual hairs, does that so then going forward, ideally, then no one would be able to like print books and do movies and stuff like that without their like written consent right
1: well it's it's um it's even more complicated than that so wow. <laughs> um the estate is this um it it is it's not a person but it, it is a it is an entity mm-hmm. um that uh that currently contr- currently is in control of the copyright yep. so an estate after anyone dies they're in a state there's an estate created by um, by the state in uh, in which the person died. That estate remains open until it's closed, until, until a probate court says, okay, um, we know what happened here. The person died on this date. He or she had this property. Um, we know through either a will or intestacy or whatever, whatever mechanism, we know where all the property is supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And the administrator has done the job of an administrator in this court and, and given in correct percentages and correct portions, the property of the decedent to the, to the heirs or other beneficiaries. Once that takes place, the estate is deemed to be closed. The estate right now, Vivian Meyer, is open. So as long as it's open, it needs someone to act as the administrator. When there is no proper administrator by law, the, a body called the public administrator's office, every state has one, it's a, government, it's a government entity, a government uh, division that administers estates that otherwise cannot be administered by an individual or, or an organization. So right now, the public administrator's office of Cook County, Illinois, is administering the estate of Vivian Meyer. And they have control over copyright. Wow. And over the last couple of years, they have determined and they have the, they have the right to do it because they're the administrator. Administrator, they have uh, at least with Mr. Malouf, they have made an agreement uh, where, in exchange for uh, a certain a certain percentage of the proceeds of the exploitation of the copyright by John Malouf, John Malouf gets to keep some of it, but but some of it uh, percentage of it goes into the estate, and and. The estate is not going to give Mr. Malouf a hard time about copyright. Wow. So there, there has been some kind of agreement. We don't know because it's 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 under seal now. Yeah. But um, the, the there an agreement has been made, was uh, made a couple of years ago that that will allow Mr. Malouf to keep on exploiting the negatives, um, and the copyright, namely. Greenberg Gallery continues to sell his work um, without any penalty in exchange for him giving up a certain percentage of the proceeds to the estate.
0: Wow. So there's just every time you see a book uh, like Vivian Meyer, I'm looking at Amazon right now. She's got a different books from some publishers or when Greenberg sells a print. There's money that's just sitting in a bank account somewhere that the Illinois. Uh, for the Yeah, they say yeah. it's just sitting there. And that's right. That's wow.
1: right. It'll it'll go in, and they, the public administrator's office, like any administrator of any estate, has a fiduciary duty mm-hmm. to do what's in the best interest of the estate, and to and to, you know, for a non legal term, you know, look out for look out for the for the for the assets of the estate. So yes, they have they have there is money in the estate right now that the administrator, is, the public administrator, is looking out uh, uh, looking after. Wow. Um, so the, the, on, the, on the subject of books, uh, and so there's a, a certain percentage, this, the, the agreement between Mr. Malouf and the public administrator's office wasn't struck until a couple of years after the estate was opened. So anything that took place before that by someone other than John Malouf, who has not entered into an agreement, a similar agreement with the public administrator's office, was violating the copyright. Wow. So anybody else that was making and selling prints, publishing books, and there are a number, there are a number of other individuals other than Mr. Maloof that have exploited the copyright, Uh, they've done so in violation of federal law.
0: Well, that's interesting. It's an it's interesting story, man. Like it's it, anybody definitely go check out the documentary finding Vivian Meyer. It's, it's wild. This, her whole story and this how because now after she died, like her photos have made millions of dollars from those books and prints. And it's, just, it's, it's, pretty wild. Um, but in terms of like copyright, you know, this is something as a freelance photographer myself, I, I know we talked a couple weeks ago about this is how, how do photographers, photographers protect themselves, protect their work, um, I know there's the U S copyright office where you can send batch photos to copyright your work. If is your work, do you still own the copyright if you don't submit it to the U S copyright office or how does that work?
1: Yeah, that that's a, that's an excellent question that, and, and, you know, believe it or not, uh, there, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, photographers that I, you know, were peers of mine when I was shooting as well as clients now that's that still don't know the distinction. So, the, the important thing for photographers and really any, any artist to remember, especially photographers, just because of the, the quantity of original works that photographers produce, every time you click the shutter, every time something is recorded either in negative form, print form, or digital form, you, you are creating a separate and distinct copyrighted work, mm-hmm. period, whether or not you do anything else with, with those images. Um, The copyright vests in the author, the moment it's created. Whether or not an author chooses to register their works with the Copyright Office does not affect copyright. It doesn't affect affect the author's copyright in the original work. All it does is by, by registering uh, original work with the Copyright Office, it gives the author the right. The, the most important thing is it gives them the right to file suit in, in U.S. District Court for copyright infringement. Mm-hmm. That is a prerequisite for, for being a plaintiff in a copyright infringement suit. You have to have a registration. It is not good enough to be able to show that you are the author and you're the copyright holder. Yeah. That law changed two years ago. Um, prior to two years ago, uh, there was a, what's called a circuit split, which means that a certain percentage of the, cert- the, U- the US district court circuits, which is federal court, disagreed on the rule for registration. There was, there was the application rule, which, which some, some district courts said, as long as you have applied, not necessarily received a, a, a completed registration, as long as you have applied for registration, you can file suit. Hmm. Um, the registration rule stated that you must have a completed registration in order to file suit. The Supreme Court weighed in on it uh, uh, almost two years ago, just about two years ago. And they unanimously said, um, we are now going by the registration rule. So in order to, in order to file suit, uh, a photographer has to both apply and receive a valid registration of copyright. The the other thing that the other the, the 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 very close second in the importance of registering your work is that depending on when you depending on the date of registration, you have two options instead of one option when when it comes to enforcing uh, your copyright. So, if a photographer registers their work within three months of of publication, not necessarily capture, but publication, which means making the work available for copying or sale. Um, so within three months of publication, the, the most obvious example is posting some work to your a commercial website. That's, that's deemed to be publication. So as long as you register your work within three months of original publication, it's deemed to be timely registered. And that's a legal definition that entitles you to actual damages, either actual damages or statutory damages under the federal statute. Statutory damages are an incredibly powerful tool because they, they they don't require a plaintiff to prove actual damages. They are statutory by nature. They are defined by the statute. And they start at $750 per incident, and they go up to $150,000 per incident, de- depending upon the, the willfulness uh, of the infringer.
0: Now... Is there is there like a time limit, say, you know, anybody listening a photographer and they've been shooting for whatever 10, 15 years, is it too late at this point to, you know, start submitting my old work that I shot 10 years ago to the US copyright office? Or you can no. it's still in your interest to do that?
1: It's it's absolutely in, in in it's absolutely in a photographer's interest to do that. There's there is no time limit on registration. You you lose by waiting by waiting more than five years you lose the presumption of validity. Mm -hmm. So if you have registered a work five years following the original publication, you lose the presumption that on its face, the the, uh, completed registration is valid. That doesn't mean that it's not valid. It just means in the court of law, you lose the presumption. Yeah. So um, also something is deemed to be timely registered if the registration date occurs before the infringement date. So it it absolutely is in a photographer's best interest to register their work late, you know, late or ne- you know, or you know, too late or or you know, years after they they originally completed their work. As long as you register your work, from that point on, if someone infringes upon your work, your your work is deemed to be timely registered. So they're, 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 there's no reason not to do it. And it is it is so cheap compared to the potential legal benefit you get out of yeah it, it's 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 every photographer should do it
0: yeah i think you can submit like up to like five or seven hundred for like i think it's like 40 bucks or something like that it's not yeah. too crazy i don't think um another thing i mean this i, I think it's interesting to talk to you because if for anybody listening david was a, is an accomplished photographer himself i think he spent 20 years photographing like editorial um photographed a lot of like big politicians and stuff And I think the thing that I struggle with and probably a lot of photographers, because for the most part, most photographers aren't making a lot of money. If you're shooting editorial, a lot of times you're making 500 bucks, 1500 bucks. If you're lucky on an assignment, when, when should you like contact a lawyer? If you run into one of these situations, because how do they, because if you're only getting paid $400 for your photo, how do the courts determine what it's worth and when is it, worth your time effort and money to contact a lawyer to actually go after someone who has unlawfully used your photo I guess
1: yeah that that's um that's a really good question so um you know if if a photographer I mean for one if a, if a photographer is a a working photographer um and th- that's not the that's not the only reason but if a if a photographer is a working photographer uh there there is inherent value in your work because mm-hmm. As as we as we we both know, you know, if you, working photographers now the business model has changed a little bit over the over the last 10 or 15 years. But for the most part, if you're a working photographer, you you your business at consists of at least uh, a portion of third parties identifying your work in some in some manner mm-hmm. uh, and licensing your work uh, coming to you either by you know assignment. Saying we want you to shoot these images, and part of our part of our arrangement is is going to be kind of a first take on your images, and we're going to license them for one issue of our publication or whatever. That's the business model. Uh, that's the traditional business model of a commercial photographer. So when when someone when an infringer copies your work without your without license or permission, mm-hmm. they are depriving you of what would have been a, a commercial license. Yep. Uh, And so usually that's, you know, the the law uh, allows you to either prove actual damages by a history of licenses or by by market rate, which is kind of what the established range is for, let's say, a use of a full page image on a commercial website, uh, you know, for two years or something like that.
0: It's tough, though, because when you think about photography, and you know this like I was just looking at Walter Yost's Instagram world famous sports illustrated sports guy and photos that he took whatever in 1968 or 72 at the time were worth whatever, not that much, but now his name and like his work has garnered more attention, more value. So it's like, that's the thing. It must be tough to argue with in court because like I could have took a picture yesterday and whatever they, they can say, it's worth four hundred dollars, but who knows? In twenty years, it can right. be worth more. So that's like got to be the struggle.
1: Yeah, and it's it's at the time of infringement. So it's it's if we're talking about actual damages, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about what the infringer would or should have paid for that image. Yeah. And and keep in mind too, the infringer doesn't get the benefit. Uh, get doesn't get the benefit of either. You know, getting caught early or or you know, kind of. Uh, asserting that they uh, really don't have very much web viewership or so forth. Uh, So for instance, if an infringer is caught, you know, uh, if an infringement is discovered a week after a, you know, a big advertising firm uses it on, you know, some ad campaign, the, the, the infringer can't turn around and say, Oh, well, you know, we only used it for a week. Therefore the actual damages are next to nothing. That doesn't happen. So it's, with very few exceptions, it's it's always worth the, uh, the the time and the effort for photographers to pursue uh, pursue their infringement. And you certainly don't photographers certainly don't want to get in the habit of ignoring their infringement because when and if they do choose to start enforcing their work, um, that that lack of interest and lack of enforcement you know can be can be held against them uh, you know in you know at a at a new trial. So it, you you never want to be in the position of not doing anything.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough. And uh what are some what is some advice you'd give to photographers? Um what are some things they can do to protect themselves? I know we mentioned a little bit about you can um register yourself with the US Copyright Office, but is there any other steps photographers should be doing to kind of protect themselves and, and their work?
1: Yeah, that that's um, you know, that's a really good question too. And the 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 dynamic in, in my experience as an attorney representing photographers there is, um, the, 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 infringement, the infringement world for photographers is much, much different than any other medium. Mm-hmm. So by, by that, I mean uh, the best that a photographer can do really effectively is take really good photographs, mm-hmm. um, post them with a copyright warning, uh, immediately adjacent to the work or on, on the person's website. Uh, m- make sure they do everything they possibly can to to indicate that they are both the author and the copyright holder uh, by either by placing a small watermark or even maybe not even a watermark, but a copyright notice next to every single image that they display on their page that they have control of. That's, that is about, and the, and obviously photographers can can embed some you know some uh, metadata or EXIF data in the actual digital file as well. But beyond that, that's what makes the 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 infringement world of photography so difficult. Once that takes place, and once somebody one individual makes the decision to copy an image without license or permission, then then all hell breaks loose because they can Photoshop out a watermark, they can ignore the copyright, they can strip the digital file uh, of metadata, and then a a photographer has effectively no control over whether or not some future third party has information that they should have, who the author is, who the copyright holder is, how do you contact them, so forth. So the photography world is is very odd in that way. The best thing a photographer can do is to, to do any number of those things. Clearly indicate that any any images on your that you post on your site are your copyright. Mm-hmm. Um, how to get a hold of you? What your rates are? Put a watermark on them. And the the most important thing too about registering your work is it has the legal effect of putting everyone else on notice that you are the copyright holder. Yeah. You're not responsible for affirmatively contacting every single potential person in the world to tell them that, that it's your copyrighted work. The standard is when you register with the copyright office, th- you, you have effectively put everyone else on notice that it's your work, you're the copyright holder, and it can't be copied. And, we, and we, that's, the best that, that's the best prior to any kind, of, any kind of litigation. That's the absolute best a photographer can do to protect their work.
0: And how about metadata is co- like copywriting the in the metadata is that it, does that help at all in terms of legal terms i guess or
1: there there are a couple real big benefits um to embedding uh metadata i mean the first is anyone who is anyone who has knowledge of of metadata some people don't but anyone who has knowledge that most digital, digital images come with metadata mm-hmm. would be able to, in theory, if your metadata is still there, that includes a copyright uh, yeah. notice, anyone should be able to tell whose copyright it is. And, and therefore in theory, uh, you know, cause the person that, that would like to copy the work, not to copy the work, mm-hmm. uh, because they know it's the copyrighted uh, property of somebody else. Beyond that, it has very significant legal um, uh, benefits to, to embedding metadata. For example, uh, there is a, well, both in standard copyright, the standard copyright uh, statute is what's called 17 USC section 504, which 17 is the US title. Mm-hmm. It's a title of that's how um, federal laws are organized. 17 is the title, USC USC stands for United States Code, and Section 504, which is the the main infringement uh, uh, code or uh, statute, Um, it permits uh, statutory damages up to $150,000 based on willfulness. Now, there is a big difference between an image that is copied by an infringer that has metadata that's, that states copyrighted John Smith as opposed to an image that has been stripped of metadata that has no information that would indicate who the copyright is. If I'm, if I'm prosecuting a case on behalf of a client and I've got a case where the infringer copied an image that has metadata that indicates it's my, it's my client's copyright, we are well on the willfulness end of the spectrum uh, as opposed to a, you know, a copy work that doesn't. The, the other thing the other tremendous ban- legal benefit that it has, uh, a photographer has by embedding metadata is that there is a separate and distinct copyright statute that specifically deals with copyright management information. So that is 17 USC 1202. We, the, the kind of the shorthand is a, It's called a 1202 claim, yeah. and it specifically deals with an infringer that not only copied the work but essentially stripped. Or, or, you know, kind of pasted over the, the copyright management information. That can be metadata, or that could be a watermark, or that could be in some cases, can be something right next to the image. So, that statute comes with its own statutory damages and attorney's fees. So, along with straight Section 504, that comes with statutory damages and attorney's fees, minimum statutory damages for. Altering or getting rid of copyright management information starts at twenty five hundred dollars mm-hmm. per image and goes up to twenty five thousand. Wow. So that if you if you start with embedding image is your metadata in your images, um, you are you are putting yourself in the best possible legal position if there is a problem down the road.
0: Yeah, and another thing that you know in the digital age, I see happen a lot. I have seen it happen in my friends' work and happen to myself before is with social media you upload your photos on your page or whatever and then you have like these third parties be it like some blog you see a lot i think like in the entertainment world it could be like tmc or like barstool sports or like maybe like huffington post where they take content from other places and then they use it as content on their page like is that just is that would that be considered fair use because like in my mind I uploaded the photo to my personal Instagram page and I know there's always when you sign there's like rules when you join Instagram or Facebook they have all their rules or whatever but then these third parties take your stuff as content without even asking your permission like is that just fair use pretty
1: much right so there 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 are a couple different things going on there and it's and it's and it's um Depending on the facts uh, of, of each specific case, there, there's it just depends. the The first thing, the first thing that you mentioned concerns the DMCA, which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is the last major overhaul or, or addition to the Copyright Act. And what the DMCA set out to do, um, the, the DMCA has been interpreted. Uh, over the years, to mean different things, and it's 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 definitely been courts have definitely interpreted it to be more to be more generous mm-hmm. uh, toward service providers. Service providers, I use that in quotes. Service providers is the legal term the DMCA uses to to define third parties that are are not liable for infringement. By, by copying uh, certain images under certain circumstances. So for example, a uh, service provider, a, a traditional service provider would be um, your internet company that, that the only way that they can they can transmit uh, information is to, is to uh, store it in a server and to make technically make a copy of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the DMCA was put in place to shield companies like that from liability because in effect um, you know they're, they they're, they're not doing it they're not doing it to display the image. they're doing it as a service to uh, yeah. both parties that are on either end of the, uh, of the transfer of information. Uh, so if a company qualifies and, and meets the legal definition of a service provider, then anything that is, that is uh, passes through their their uh, you know kind of uh, network and is stored on their servers is not liable to copyright infringement and that includes being displayed on their website. So, Huffington Post is a perfect example. That is that is the classic example of a company that is that is qualifies for DMCA protection. You know, given they given they satisfy all the elements. The first one is they. They have to, in, in very broad terms, a service provider must be a neutral party. Mm-hmm. So they must not exert any kind of control over the content, the cropping, the, you know, the editing of, of any kind, or, or the, the, the selection of images that are, are displayed on their site. So Huffington Post is a, con, you know, is a kind of a clearinghouse for other people's work. So all they do, the Huffington Post sits back and they say, "Well, we're not. We don't have anything to do with this content. All we're doing is creating a platform." Yeah. Um, therefore, the the infringement the infringement issue is not with them. It's with the it's with the third party that uploaded the information to Huffington Post. Um. So, uh. So the other part of your question is like, if you put something, there is a there is definitely a distinction between you as a photographer publishing something to your commercial website Mm -hmm. and publishing it to Instagram or Facebook, uh, that have terms that purport to, to strip individuals who upload their work specifically photographs to their platform of the copyright. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you read the terms, it purports to, and it's, it's still an open issue, whether or not the terms are, um, you know, can be, can be enforced, but they at least purport to um, give away your copyright that to, to, to the platform, uh, not, not to third parties. So yeah. when a third party comes and copies somebody's work from Instagram or any other social network, they're still committing copyright infringement. It's just that those terms are only protecting the platform mm-hmm. and predict. And, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think most terms of social media say, well, we can use it for whatever we want. So once you once you upload something to our platform we can use it for w- w- whatever you want. There's a debate whether or not that is that is enforceable too, but it certainly doesn't it certainly doesn't shield any other third party from from coming in and making a screen capture of your image and then posting it somewhere else. That's still an infringement.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there was a whole case. I'm sure you're familiar with it, with the uh, the artist Richard Prince, who is like an artist. I think he does like painting and sculpture and he his work sells for millions of dollars at like Christie's auction house. Yeah. And there was like a case where he basically was photographing old print ads of Marlboro cigarettes. And he, I think I don't know if I think he won the case. I could be wrong he was he's saying won that
1: some he's won some and he's lost others.
0: Yeah. He was basically taking the ads and it was taking pictures with a 35 millimeter camera and this making different crops of that Marlboro cigarettes ad and then blowing it up and making prints for like gallery shows. And it was, yeah, it was just like an interesting story. Like the, what was your kind of take on it? Yeah. He's,
1: that? he's kind of the bane of every photographer's existence. Yeah. Um, You know, honestly Uh he uh he he's produced uh, well his cases have produced kind of a steady stream of case law that um, that a lot of a lot of in uh, copyright infringement lawyers like myself used uh, in in pleadings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they his cases in general there are a number of them and most of them he 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 ends up a loser. Some of them he some of them he ends up the kind of the winner, yeah. but they they almost all come down to whether or not. They're all fair use issues, so there are you know there's there's no debate that he did the copying, so that that's that's never the issue. It's never the issue of of proving that he copied something. He he is a he is a proficient copier of other people's work, but when he wins the fair use argument, it's typically because he has transformed the original work uh, t- to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh and that not not exclusively but that kind of pushes the fair use argument over t- toward his favor. When he when he copies work and doesn't transform it uh enough um for the for the you know the court that's making the decision then it's deemed not to be fair use and it's deemed to be infringement.
0: Yeah. And it's to, a uh, topical. I don't know if you've caught the viral sensation that is the Bernie Sanders meme uh, that's been going around with him sitting from the inauguration. Yeah. And it made me think because like everyone's this whoever took the picture, they're probably stealing it off Google Image Search or whatever. Yeah. Oh, like, now
1: it's now that now it's like it's if the cat is out of the bag. I mean, now it's you know, no one has any idea who the original photographer was. But yes, that that that's a fascinating case because um you know, it, it, I don't know the I don't know the facts. I, I've seen a couple of memes that have been that have been forwarded to me. I and in and there's,
0: a, there's a million. There's a million. They're funny.
1: Yeah. Uh, but, you know, number one, if I were the photographer, I would be very upset. Yeah. But I I would probably the, the from the limited knowledge that, that, that I, I have concerning the case or concerning the, the use of that image. Yeah, yeah. I would say they're they're they probably fall into fair use yeah. in that they. know you know fair use is it's never about copying you Mm -hmm. know it's it's never about whether or not you actually copied something all fair use cases the copying is it copying has been established it's just have you have you done enough to qualify for fair fair use i would argue i would probably argue and i think it's 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 probably a a a winnable argument that those uses in the memes are are fair use because they're um very heavy on the political commentary um end of things so they're not being used as um, to sell things. They're not being used to um, represent certain people in, in certain way. They are being used strictly um, for, for political commentary, you know the yeah. ones that I've seen are, you know, Bernie Sanders being hauled away, you know, in place. The of best,
0: the best, the best one I saw this yeah. morning was Bernie Sanders in, in a UFC octagon putting the dude like in a headlock. <laughs> I yeah. was dying, uh, yeah. but it just made me think. Before I got on the phone with you, it was just kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, uh, and that's and, you know, it's it's you know, it's kind of a well, I don't I I don't know the facts other than other yeah. than you know yeah. the, the few ones that I've seen that are that are humorous, but. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind, of the, that's kind of the curse of being a photographer who takes a, a meme worthy image is that, you know, the m- most of the usage is probably going to be probably going to qualify as fair use. You know, yeah. it's, it's probably the argument can be made uh, by anyone defending an infringement suit is that the people that copied your work, you know, are are not not doing it for not doing it for anything but you know some kind of some kind of commentary and therefore therefore yeah. it's it's uh you know the 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 copier is not liable
0: no it's interesting and a few more questions i don't want to take up too much of your time uh how how'd you go how do you go from being a photographer like to being a lawyer like what was that transition because you spent over 20 years i think you you shot for uh, like like newsweek and big p- publications and Photographed everyone from like John Lewis and a bunch of other politicians. Like, how do you kind of make that transition from being a photographer to be a lawyer?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I guess uh, I had always thought about it. I had always thought about the possibility of changing careers, and uh, there there are a number of attorneys in my family, including my father. And mm-hmm. he's not an intellectual property attorney, but you know, at least I had kind of basic knowledge of of the profession, and. I mean, I guess uh, you know when I, you know, anyone who's worked as a freelance photographer, even you know, part time or or even full time, it is it's an industry that at least personally speaking, you know, I think in, in probably the twenty years that I you know I worked for, I, I was a staff photographer for a couple of publications. I, I the vast majority of the twenty years I worked as a freelancer, mm-hmm. and the the overwhelming like inescapable part of being a freelancer is that, you know, you, you never know what's around the corner. Yeah. You, you never know whether or not you're just about to land a huge job. You never, you never know whether or not, you know, things are going to just end, mm-hmm. um, you know, next week. And recently I was, I was speaking with, uh, spe- spoken with a couple of people about this, the, the, the same thing recently. And in the 20 years, I don't think I was ever more than two weeks out yeah. as far as jobs go. Mm-hmm. So that's how temporary and that's how that's how speculative uh, and uncertain working as a freelancer is. And I got used to it. Uh, I got used to convincing myself that everything was going to be okay and that things would come around. And, and for the most part, they did. Yeah. Uh, I worked very hard to cultivate clients. I, I traveled to New York regularly and Chicago regularly to meet with clients. And and it just, it's exhausting. Yeah. And I, I know what my clients have to go through to, to, you know, to kind of be a success. And when there was, there was a downturn, there was a pretty severe downturn in 2007 and
0: 2008,
1: yep. uh, where I like, not overnight, but like kind of figuratively uh, overnight lost, you know, half of my regular clients in a matter of like three months. Yeah. And at that point, I, I just... I, I, you know, I, I sat down and and told myself that I've got to figure out something else to do.
0: Yeah, the editorial game's tough, man. Like I, I think I've been doing it for like twelve years now, and I definitely have those mental battles. Like because it's like the rates they don't go up; like they just go, go, they only go down, or magazines go out of business, and it gets tougher and tougher. You really have to love it to do this, uh, it because it is, it, it is a battle. Um, and you
1: and Alex, I you probably you're probably young enough. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit too young because I, I came in like right after the, the industry was changing. Yep. But you're probably, you're probably young enough where you don't remember what, what um, being paid for space is. So, yeah. you know, photographers used to, editorial photographers used to get paid for space. So if you took a shot, if you took a, took an assignment, you know, if you, you were hired for an assignment, you, you went out and, and completed it uh, and the publication really liked your work, they could run, you know, uh, contra- you know, kind of differently than how it works now yeah, if they really liked your work and said, oh, yeah, by the way, your work is great. We're going to put one image on the cover, one image on the contents page, one image is a full page as, you know, leading off the article and a couple of small ones. You got paid separately for each one of those placements. You got paid extra for the cover, extra for the content page, extra for a full page spread. And, and on top of your, uh, your, your original day rate, yeah. that doesn't exist anymore. No,
0: it's all flat rate, social media. Um, yeah. I love, I love the line you get in a contract where it's like uh, everything's perpetuity, but then they, they're like, we can use it on technology that doesn't even exist anymore. That's right. That's, I'm like,
1: what? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it, it is, it is not an even relationship now. Um, I'm not sure if it was ever ever an equal relationship, but but right now it is it is absolutely in the favor of uh, you know the, the the clients who hire freelancers, and it's just I, I respect my clients quite a bit that have have learned how to change their business model and to stay in business and to thrive. Yeah. Um, but I I just you know I, I was I just wasn't worth I, I wasn't willing to to take that risk.
0: No, definitely. And is there like anything you feel like you learned from the years of being a freelance photographer that's kind of helped you in like your new career as a lawyer?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, that, that's, uh, you know, I, I, I do feel like I'm in a, in a, in a fairly unique position in that, you know, as of right now, I I have more time as a freelancer than I do as a, as an attorney. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, over the, the overwhelming, the overwhelming kind of benefit that I that I got was that I, my clients, my clients, almost to the person, uh, would rather not spend any time tracking down infringers. You yeah. know, and and that was the same when I when I was when I was shooting. You know, I I was aware of people misusing my work, but the idea of not working as a not shooting and not putting my efforts and time into cultivating new clients or making existing clients happy or thinking about things that I could shoot and, and potentially sell to clients and having to replace that with the stress and the money and the time of tracking out people that had stolen your work, that, that's, that, that's, that's an exchange that most photographers aren't willing to make. And so I'm, I'm, I'm certainly aware of that kind of thing and try to um, try to not bother my clients as much as I, you know, if, if, as much as I can to, mm-hmm. to permit them to work instead of, instead of dedicate their time and resources to worrying about infringement matters.
0: Yeah. and I would, I would imagine that your years of working as a photographer, and I'm sure you ran into situations where people use your work, um, infringe on your copyright. I'm sure your clients, they trust you because you spent those two decades of like, doing what they do like you actually understand what it's like and you have that perspective versus some lawyer that didn't actually have that career prior to being a lawyer you know
1: yeah it, it helps when i make legal arguments as well oh, really? i mean it, it helps that i know all the terminology and it, it helps it, it just helps um when i'm making legal arguments because i i can i can you know without without preparing and without you know kind of studying and without doing anything i can i can Put myself in their position and, and as best as I can describe, you know, kind of what it's like when your work appears somewhere that you know you haven't authorized and you didn't get paid for it. And um, you know, it, it's just it, it makes it, it makes the my interactions with my client as well as uh, you know courts and opposing parties just much much easier because I I I'm just I'm familiar with the landscape.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, David, man, I could talk to you for three hours. So I got like 9000 questions, man. But I, I I, thank you for taking the time to come on, man. And like I said, I was a fan of your work before you're a lawyer, man. <laughs> I, I got I got the signed copy right here. Right here. Uh, That's too funny. Yeah, right there, man. That's so, awesome. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time, man. And I guess if any photographers listening, if they ever have any um, issues copyright wise, where's the best place to reach you, I guess?
1: My my commercial website is my name which is daviddeal.com. No no spaces or anything. D A V I D D E A L.com. Everything's there. Welcome to welcome to visit the site.
0: Perfect. Well, we can leave it there, but thanks so much David.
1: You're very welcome, Alex.
0: All right, take care. Okay. Bye. So there you have it. That was the David Deal interview. Uh, so I just want to thank David so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I know I learned a lot um, as a photographer who's been doing this for a long time. I've run into many situations where my copyright has been infringed, and I know I felt lost and didn't really know what to do, and uh, getting to talk to someone who not only knows the law but has a deep understanding of photography and was a professional photographer himself for uh, nearly two decades, I, I, I know I just learned a lot, and uh, can't thank him enough um, if you ever have any issues with copyright or questions or looking for a lawyer or things like that, um, definitely reach out to David Deal. His website is daviddeal.com. Um, he's doing amazing work out there. So uh, definitely hit him up. Uh, but as always, I'll uh, be having a weekly podcast every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify as well as the Photo Banter YouTube page. Um, So definitely go check us out on YouTube. I'm also doing for my 200th episode, which is coming up this Thursday, February 11th, I'm doing a giveaway with Sekonic Meters. All you need to do to enter is go to the Photo Banter YouTube page, hit subscribe, leave a comment on the 200th episode giveaway video, and you'll be entered for a chance to win a Sekonic Light Meter, which I'll be announcing on February 11th. Um, So as always, thanks so much for listening, and take care.